0: October the 30th, 2016, lecture discussion number 259 on the Book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, by way of Daniel 7 and Revelation 17. Okay, we have been at Revelation 17:9. We are there because it is promising us. That wisdom is here. Understanding it will give us wisdom. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The mind that can understand what is being discussed in the last half of chapter 17 of Revelation will be a mind that has wisdom. I would hope that we would all recognize the value of that. Revelation 13.18. Sorry, 13.18. Yes, my pens that come from Japan have run out. My black one has run out of the refill. So now I'm back to technologically inferior devices. That's a hint for whoever sent me those in from Japan. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding about that. Not really, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So 17.9 tells us of the seven heads. 13.18 says calculate the number of the beast. Two passages in Revelation that are direct, that reveal a characteristic of someone with wisdom. A mind with wisdom is going to understand the mystery of the mother of all harlots. A mind with wisdom the mother of all harlots who is carried by the scarlet beast. This mind will be able also to calculate the number of the beast. So, if you have wisdom, you understand the mother of all harlots who is carried by the scarlet beast and you can calculate the number of that beast. The inverse is likewise plainly implied, isn't it? The mind without wisdom is lacking the ability to do either of those. The mind without wisdom cannot calculate the number of the beast. The mind without wisdom is without understanding of mystery, mystery Babylon. The mind without wisdom cannot solve the beast that was and is not and yet is who will ascend out of his pit, go to perdition, is one of the seven, is himself also the eighth. Takes wisdom to know that. Therefore, we're confronted by a biblical wisdom status evaluation. And there's more to this than might be first discernible. You see, I'm going to argue that the converse to wisdom is delusion. You either have wisdom or you are delusional. And not just delusional, you are specifically you fell for a delusion. I'm going to offer Second 2 Thessalonians 2:11 on my behalf as primary evidentiary value. Second 2 Thessalonians 2:11. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Definitive article. That they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Again, definite article. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice the two choices. You're going to have those who believe the lie and those who believe the truth. Delusion. Wisdom. I think it's obvious the lie is the scarlet beast, and the truth is Jesus Christ. They are individuals. The scarlet beast and the Lamb of God, the Ancient of Days. A good case can also be advanced uh, that as with the lie, the lie is a person, the Antichrist, as well as the lie of Satan. Did I say that in a way that makes sense? It is has a two-fold aspect to it, just as the truth does. The truth is the person of Christ and the truth is also of the person of Christ. The lie is the person of the Antichrist. The lie is also that which the Antichrist sins, utilizes. I also believe the strong delusion is the same uh, concept. It is referencing the scarlet beast And it is uh, referencing that which the scarlet beast utilizes. So both the person and the plan are the concept. As an aside here, Jesus refers to Judas in very strong terms. He calls Judas the lie. He calls him the evil thing, John 17, 15. He calls him the devil, John 6:70. So this is the creator God, the ancient of days, the I am, calling Judas the evil thing, the lie, the devil, the son of perdition, the strong delusion, John 17, 12. So that's the list for the list makers. God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh. The God-man looks at this person, calls him the evil thing, the lie, the devil, the strong delusion, and the son of perdition. That makes Judas a pretty unusual person in Scripture. Notice also that the issue of 2 Thessalonians 2.11 is one of belief. There will be those who believe the lie... And those who believe the truth, that is a mental property, a decision, a choice, an act of will. And that becomes very important. It's not something that you do. It is something that you believe. The contrast couldn't be more vivid. Uh, Maybe I should put it on the board for you. No, I'll run out of time for sure. I won't couldn't be more obvious or more plain, more vivid, as I was saying. You have the evil thing, the lie, the devil, the son of perdition, the seed of the serpent, the strong delusion, the scarlet beast, the man of sin, the king of Babylon, the idol shepherd. Oops. The idol shepherd, Satan man. On the other side, the truth, the holy thing, the truth, the angel of God, the seed of the woman, the Lamb of God, the King of Jerusalem, the Good Shepherd, God-man. They are distinct and obvious. The man, the mind that has wisdom can know which is the lie and know what the lie is. Who is the lie and what the lie entails. And hopefully that made sense. Let me try it again, just in case. The mind that has wisdom can know the plan of Satan and why the plan is the plan. The Jerusalem element would be a, a, an example of knowing why the plan is the plan. But also know who the plan is. And the mind that has wisdom can calculate the identity of the evil thing. Both are the same and different. And hopefully that makes sense. So you can know the plan and know the identity of the plan. They're distinct but the same. The plan and the identity of the plan or the identity of the person of the plan is also called the plan. And that that follows all through the Bible and many other different aspects. As you know from last week or the previous week, I have the king of the kingdom and the kingdom are, are the same. They're interchangeable terms and understanding that becomes important. I could be referring to the person, I could re- be referring to the kingdom, or I could be referring to both as I read a, a passage or the passage could be referring and I have to figure out which is which and why. Now, over my so-called time in the church business, I have uh, recognized a resurfacing dynamic with respect to uh, deceptive techniques. I've begun to spend more time looking at uh, tricks, as you know. I find it fascinating because people love to be tricked. And I always thought, well, that's an interesting idea for the church. Why would people go to a show knowing that everything in the show is a trick and like being tricked. And people also like believing the trick is real. And I began to recognize, as I said, um, the deceptive techniques. And you really understand it when you come in contact with people that use these kinds of techniques or recognize these kinds of uh, techniques uh, in a criminal sense. The Requirements for the methods to be successful uh, are predictable and recognizable. In order to be deceived, in order to be fooled, you must have a willingness to be deceived. A desire to be deceived, something that every scam artist fully knows. They look for people that like being deceived. Now, they may not know why they like being deceived, and I'll get to that in a second. There are certain attributes present that, therefore, and therefore exposed when an elaborate scheme succeeds. And some of these characteristics, but certainly not all, are an indefensible self evaluation, believing irrespective of amount of contrary evidence that one is highly competent or intelligent or attractive. I used to ask my high school boys, I had mostly boys in my physics class, and I'd ask them, how intelligent are you on a scale of 1 to 10? You've heard me tell this story many times. How um, attractive are you? How much money are you going to make before the age of 30? How, How funny are you? Uh, Will you marry Farrah Fawcett? There, I just dated myself. And they, overwhelmingly, they would measure themselves as tens. I had one or two that were realistic. And I said, the realistic one will not be fooled. The rest of you are are primed. So if you have a self-evaluation, if you think of yourself as something that is not true, If the evidence in front of you is overwhelming, but you still think otherwise, you are ready. You are being prepared by yourself. These kinds of people who think that they are tens in all category will offer opinions on complex matters. That's how they reveal themselves. They will come to you and give you an opinion on a complex matter without any hesitation, despite no expertise or validity whatsoever. You can't stop them. Most of them become home building contractors. I know them. They tell me how to do things all the time. I can't stop them from telling me. And they can't stop themselves. And they believe, I used to wear a sign when I was coaching all these years, and uh, I would sit down, and the player or the student, sometimes it was a student would come to me and say, I have to tell you something. And I'd say, okay, just a second. And I'd, I had a sign that I had put, it wasn't that well done, but I put it around my neck. I had a lanyard around it, and it says, I believe you, really, really, I believe you. Now go ahead. And they would still tell me the same thing. Even though I'm exposing to them that there's no possibility I believe them. Trying to use sarcasm. It didn't work. And I would get these ridiculous stories. An experienced con man knows this about people. He seeks out these traits along with greed and selfishness. So if you walk into one of these... Uh, into the realms of these professional swindlers and you are someone that thinks you're the most attractive person in every room, the smartest person in every room, that you're brilliant, uh, that your opinions are valid, even though you know nothing about these particular subjects, then this person will find you because he's looking for you. If you have, if you run into somebody that is habitually a compulsive liar, manipulative controlling personality, beware of those people. Avoid those people. Those who love controlling others, who bask in it, always have the same characteristic. They lack empathy. Lacking empathy is always accompanied by a maniacal controlling personality. Beware of those people. And again, when these kinds of personalities that I've just personality traits, someone with all, all or some of them come into the uh, purview of the professional swindler, they become the fatted calf. Swindlers teach themselves to look for it. And they also like the fact that if they identify you because you have these, these characteristics, then you deserve to be cheated, and that's how they morally justify it. They know that you are easy to to, to take advantage of and you deserve it. Think of them as the low-hanging fruit. And they're the low-hanging fruit precisely because they cannot be persuaded that they are about to be defrauded. And after they are defrauded, you cannot persuade them that they have been defrauded. Their personalities don't allow for it. The old adage that it is far more effortless to fool a man than to convince him that he is being fooled is P.T. Barnum, proven every minute. The point is, God's word calls his people to be wise and humble. If you are wise, you are humble. Wisdom is always accompanied by humility, just as controlling personalities are always accompanied by lack of empathy. Wisdom is never coupled with conceit, the Bible tells us. And I believe a direct ratio is evident. The more conceit that you have, the less wisdom that you have. And the inverse would be likewise true, right? All of that to note, the man of sin, the little horn, is described as having a consuming egotism, a pomposity. Through the pride of his countenance he will not seek the Lord. Psalm 10:4. Of the seven things that God hates, Proverbs 6:17, what's first? Do you remember Pride. The first is pride. the seven abominations, the seven things that God hates, he lists pride first. Conceit. Pride in what becomes the obvious question. What are you what is what is the man of sin proud of? Satan fell because of pride. What was Satan proud of? Do not think what you normally would. Look past what your first instinct is and say, How significant, how complicated is the pride of Satan? Because I believe that it is far more uh, complicated or far more, it has more depth to it than is ever really discussed. Why is pride the first of the seven? The implication is that it's the foundation of the following six. Why is that so? Satan and the Antichrist have this characteristic and they prey on those who are also inclined. So they would know that anyone who has this is is an easy victim. Anyway. Here at Revelation 17.9 and Revelation 13.18, Scripture gives us a wisdom verification exam. Here is the mind that has wisdom. Immediately, there's a flurry of questions that emerge from that. Why is this wisdom? How does this bring wisdom? What will this wisdom that I have now because I've got this, why would I seek it? I give this lecture maybe 25 times over the last 25 years. and. I started doing home groups, and this is one of the things everybody wanted to know. Prophecy has always been popular, and if you want to draw a crowd or get rid of a crowd, this is what you do. Works both ways for me. They come, but then they leave as fast as I start. Why is this wisdom? How is this going to bring wisdom to you, knowing this? Who will seek to know it? Who will really persevere and learn it? And what are what, what happens to us, to you, to me, to all of us when we do have it? I, I always have noticed in all of those years of doing it um, that the crowd starts out large and then it shrinks to a very few because to persevere to know it is arduous. It's difficult. And there doesn't seem to be any value to it. It doesn't impact me. But the Bible is telling you otherwise. This is the mind that has wisdom. So to rephrase all that, how is it that an in-depth comprehension of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17 brings you to wisdom? As God defines wisdom. How does this subject make one wise? Do you want to be wise? That becomes the first question. Every time I ask that in high school studentry, of the high school student tree, the answer I got was no. They don't want to be wise. I think I said a while back, wisdom is wasted on the old. Uh, because when the wise, when the old people have wisdom, nobody wants it. So we should give it to somebody else if they don't ask. Yes, sir. Mhm. Well certainly willfully is is absolutely correct. Never never take away from the fact that the people that will be deceived by the Antichrist do so with full knowledge. <coughs> okay. What's, the, the, what's the, the central question of Daniel 7, Daniel 2, Revelation 13, Revelation 17? There's a commonality of all of those subjects within those chapters or in those passages. And then, again, why these? Why is this a mind that has wisdom? And let me repeat just some of what's before us. I, I, I'll put this on the board. Ugh. So you can see it. There's no other way. And I recognize that I'm kind of backing up a little bit. I'm backing up a little bit today because of the reaction I typically get when I do this. And I've gotten it again. I have to slow down. I overload you. I do. I do it on purpose. But I recognize I have to come back and do it again. I also know this thing squeaks now. So I can take advantage of that at any opportunity. And if I do... You know it's intentional. So let's look at the commonality or those elements that, that come before us here. Let, let me just repeat some of them. The Ancient of Days doesn't mean that uh, he's infirm. It means that he is timeless. Uh, the Lamb of God, and I'm leaving off of the, the, the articles now. But they're there. The Lamb of God. The Singularity. The Son of Man. Son. Uh, I'm doing that wrong. I, re- I realize that this confuses people a-, a-, a lot. But it is a God term. Christ is identifying himself as the Ancient of Days. Over on this side, I, I have the little horn. The scarlet beast. We haven't even begun to figure out. I think I might have mentioned the scarlet aspect of the beast. The red dragon. And you start to see this delineation. The king of kings. All of these are from Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Lord of lords. The beloved city, or the beloved city, and that, that, that incorporates the Magog-Gog of the last chapter of Revelation. Of The last chapters. Here are the great harlot, Mystery Babylon. These are the terminologies of wisdom. I'll make i I'll just put these down in the middle. But so you see the contrast that, that is established. I have the image of Nebuchadnezzar. He's involved here. When I, whenever you see the word image, immediately you think of the image of God. We are made in the image of God. So there are those who are going to be converted to the image of the Antichrist. So when Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of himself. That becomes pretty important. So Nebuchadnezzar. If you spell Nebuchadnezzar, you're doing really good. The image of the beast. So I have an image of God, an image of Nebuchadnezzar, an image of the beast. The mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a visible mark. He, you're going to be able to see it. It'll also have other properties. The mark of God, however, is not visible. Notice the difference. One is physical, one is non-physical. God is spirit. The seven heads. Oh, uh, the mark of the beast, of course, it has also with it in Attached to it is the worship of the beast and the marveling. People who marvel at the mark, who marvel at the beast, will worship the beast and worship Satan. The seven heads, uh, the iron mixed with clay, uh, the ten horns, who have but a short time, an hour, was, let me put that up here, was, is, not, Will yet is, sorry, yet is, will ascend and go to perdition. The abyss, of course, is perdition. Well, let me not say that yet. Let me, let me make that case as we go along. I'll just put the abyss down here, or the pit, bottomless pit. If it is bottomless, what does that imply? What's required to be bottomless? Say that again? Yes, he said, eternality. Uh, it means that it is not physical for sure, right? Huh? Uh, the seventh and the eighth, the mortal wound, are the deadly wound. The vision of Daniel. Running out of room, but it'll be all right. Daniel's vision or dream, actually, it's more of a vision. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. Let's put Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his image, and also his dream underneath him. Because they are uh, reasonably close together. Then I have the stone that was manufactured. Without hands, the stone made without hands. The uh, the one mind of the ten kings. So where's my ten kings? So the ten horns. They are made to have oneness in mind. Oops, made without hands. Uh, The image of God. Do I have the image of God up there? I'll put it again, just in case. The book of life. I've got those books. I have the Lamb's book of life. Uh, And the angel of God. The angel. Do I have that here? No. Okay. That, what I say to you, is the the majority of getting wisdom, understanding those pieces. First, you need to know what the pieces are. So you can kind of look at them and say to yourself, now, how many of those do I understand? Do I understand any of them? Um, How much of each one do I understand? What what do I know? The more you know about them, the more wisdom you will have. And that may be seem like a lot on the board. It really isn't, uh, truth be told. It's barely representative, but it is a beginning for us. I left out mass extinction events, uh, which is the angel of God. But I could have been more specific. Melchizedek, the cup of filth, the 490s, Antiochus IV, Titus. I could go on. Make him stop. Remember the story of the little kid that would come with his mom halfway through the lecture. He'd say, make him stop, mom. Make him stop. And he'd say it in a loud voice. I could hear him every time. It made me laugh. So what did it do? It added five minutes every time he said it. I had to punish that kid. I wonder whatever happened to him. I hope he's doing well in prison. I actually know the family. I'd have to guess. I'd say the young man has got to be in his late 20s by now. I hope he gets out soon. Okay. (laughs) At least we've got an almost maybe adequate list. Much Much to the delight of the list makers. This is a path to wisdom. Is it easy? No. Is it complete? No. Some assembly required? Oh, yeah. Uh, nonetheless, it's a plan. Now is the time to define and collate and categorize it. In the last couple of weeks, kind of sort of tried it. Not very well. Didn't go well. Took on mainly the seven heads. Where are my seven heads? Right here. That's what I did. Uh, mostly last few weeks. And, and, the, and the four beasts. I, I don't Oh, I didn't have the four beasts up here. Daniel's. Oh, there it is. Four beasts. Daniel. So that's pretty much what we did, was the seven heads and Daniel's four beasts. That's where we were. Trying to do two of the list in order to get wisdom. How much wisdom? Whole list. Is the list whole? No. Partial list did two. And those seven, if you remember, the seven, five have fallen. One is and one is yet to come. Here's the cool part. Someone told me the other day, I don't know which one of you it was, that I went a whole lecture without any of those words that cannot be uttered. I did it. Did I do it twice in a row? Wow. I almost did it wrongly there. This is the holy platinum model blessed dry erase board. It rotates. Isn't that cool? So we can go back and forth. We want one that is motorized. So I can just go. Never going to happen. So, we took on these seven heads and the four beasts last week. Seven heads, five have fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. That was given to John, so the is is in the present tense for John at his time. The fourth beast of Daniel was an iron beast. And that you see the word beasts and and then you say the fourth one was an iron beast and people immediately ascribe the antichrist no God is calling these particular uh Entities, beasts, and you have to ask why. God describes humanity very often as a beast. So, to repeat myself, in Revelation 17, I have the seven heads, five have fallen, one is, one is yet to come, at the time of John. In Daniel, I have four beasts. The fourth beast was an iron beast, um, and that had an iron component, so this is the fourth beast. And it has an iron component, and that the teeth are iron. And it, it, it devours, and it, it breaks, and it is very, very powerful. And so we now have to immediately say, what does iron mean? Define iron as a symbol, obviously, becomes important. Iron in the Bible is equated uh, with hardness. Whereas wood is easily broken. Iron is not, or iron is difficult to break, Jeremiah 28:13. Many times wood is a symbol for what? The Ark of the Covenant is gold over wood. Iron is not wood. Wood is easily broken, not so iron. Iron, though, is mixed with clay in Daniel 2. So, let stop there. In Daniel 2, we have an image of Nebuchadnezzar where the last part of it is ten toes. Oops. And those ten toes are iron mixed with clay. So, now I know something. I have iron in both places and I can make the decision... That that may not be a coincidence. And the, and the mixing of the clay in with the iron makes the iron fragile. Now, isn't that interesting? So, I have things that are dissimilar mixed together, making one fragile. The ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Again, Daniel uh, 2 Uh, As I said last week, let's go Revelation 17 now. Oh, I'm already here, Revelation 17, sorry. Here I have ten kings. That are the, the ten horns or the ten kings. Over here I have ten toes that are iron. So now I see ten and ten makes me ask again, is that coincidental or is that helping me? I believe, as you know, I said last week that I think this all makes it, is illustrative. I think it all makes it clear who is who. The ten iron toes, the iron teeth, the uh, ten kings, the ten horns is all representative of this fourth beast of Daniel. This beast of Daniel is given total control by the ten toes. So that would tell me that the, if the fourth beast of Daniel is iron and ten, then it must be who over here of the seven heads? One is, one is yet to come this is the one with the 10 horns then and the 10 horns if you read daniel or revelation 17 give the one that is over to the one that is yet to come the seventh does that make sense to you i'm doing it by figuring out iron takes me to iron iron has 10 10 takes me to 10 10 puts me here and the one is is now the fourth beast of Daniel. Let me uh, redo this a little bit, see if that works for you. After the ten teeth, I'm sorry, yeah, the ten teeth and the ten toes and the ten kings, the beast is given control. And as as in the case in Daniel 7-8, the Antichrist is slain, By the Ancient of Days, which is on the other side. Remember, Daniel 7.11. The scarlet beast is slain by the Lamb of God, Revelation 17.14. And the stone cut without hands destroys the iron toes in Daniel 2.45. Did you note that order? Maybe, maybe not. I have the ten ultimately destroyed by the stone... I have the beast that is yet to come being destroyed by the ancient of days and the, uh, um, and the Lamb of God. I have all of it. In other words, let me give you a flow chart. I start out with something. It goes to something. That something has an element of tin to it and iron to it. That goes to the beast, the final kingdom or the final head. And that beast is destroyed by the Ancient of Days, or the Stone, or the Lamb, in all three passages. Hopefully I got that through. So then, the iron, the ten toes, the iron teeth, the killing of the beast, the order is identical. And because the order is identical, we can logically conclude that the iron beast is the sixth head of the seven heads. This is the sixth head. It is the iron beast. The iron beast ends up with ten horns or it ends up with ten toes. But it isn't the seventh beast or the seventh head, sorry. It's the sixth head. So now I know that the fourth beast of Daniel is the sixth beast of Revelation 17. So the fourth beast of Daniel is the one that is at the time of John. Who's at the time of John? That's the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire still is Roman Empire has divided into two, but has not divided into ten. It has to divide into ten. Then that ten is given to the beast, and that is the seventh head, which is also the eighth. And I can figure that out, again, with the ten and the iron and the horns. Put it together that way. That's what I've done. So, at the end of the sixth head... We are currently still in the one is. The one is has gone on for, for another couple of thousand years since John got this. And we're still in it. Eventually, it becomes ten toes mixed with iron and clay. Eventually, it becomes ten kings, which are the ten horns. Eventually, it becomes ten things, if you will. And from there now comes the last head, the seventh head, which then becomes the What? The eighth head. Because the last head is the seventh and the eighth. What makes the difference between the seventh and the eighth? Something does. So, at the end of the sixth head, the sixth head will have its end. This ten king division, this iron mixed with clay, comes for a short time. It was math from here then. That the lion, the bear, and the leopard of Daniel 7, counting backwards. If the, if the iron beast is the, the sixth head, then the lion, the bear, and the leopard of Daniel 7, counting backwards. Call it subtraction. That's what we would do. Would be respectively then, the leopard would be the fifth head. The bear would be the fourth head. And the lion would be the third head. So the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go back this way now. Nebuchadnezzar. Did I say that right? Nebuchadnezzar is the third head. So of the four beasts, let's put them over here. The lion, the bear, the leopard. And the iron beast, the iron beast, is the sixth head that makes the leopard the fifth head, the bear the fourth head, and the lion the third head. What's the obvious question? Yeah. We go here. We have now coming after the sixth head. I, let me put this: after the sixth, the beast, the iron beast, becomes a ten-toed iron clay mix and then it becomes the seventh head which is also the eighth and these two are the who who's the king that is the man of sin that's right he is the king and they are the kingdom he is both he is the seventh and also the eighth or he He is also the eighth and is the seventh. How does that work? I kept asking you a few minutes ago. How do I separate those two? What separates the seventh from the eighth? Okay, so Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is the second head of the seven heads of Revelation 17, 9, causing again. Who's the first head? Who's the second head then? And some will say Nimrod of Babylon is the first head. Others will say, no, Pharaoh of Egypt is the second head. Others say, no, Pharaoh is the first and Assyria or Sennacherib is the second. Many will say, no, Nero belongs in there. What is the criteria that makes a head? Jerusalem, absolutely well said. Something to do with Jerusalem. Everyone agrees that the seventh and the eighth is the Antichrist, seed of Satan, Babylon. Everyone agrees with that. By everyone, I mean me. (laughs) Hopefully, we can take appraisal at this juncture and count our wisdom total. Okay. How much do you think you know about these seven heads now? How much do you know about these four beasts as they relate to the seven heads? Can you sit down with a pencil, write down iron and tin, and work your way through this? I could do it slower, but it would kill us all. And I know that's not possible. And besides, if I do all of it for you, who wins? Me. All I want to do is give you enough to where you go, okay, I can do this. I can do what the, these men and women of, the, of the hundreds of years ago sat down to do. So, yes, we, we don't have much of a wisdom total right now. It didn't take long to count it, so we endeavor to persevere. Let's pick up another rudiment of wisdom by let's. I mean me again. I choose because I have this. I can choose anything on here. I should have something. Yes, where am I? Let me find it. Right here. That's 666. I've got to be able to calculate that to have wisdom. I've got to have some idea what's going on with the heads. Now I've got to calculate the 666. And it says calculate. And we have calculators. We should be able to do this. There's a totality to the 666. When I thought, and it worried me when I had serious surgery because I picked up a beam and threw it ten feet and I should not have been able to pick it up but I thought it was reasonably light and I also thought as Bill did that I could do things that I could once do and I picked it up and it was a, I think it was a, a five and an eighth by six and a quarter Twenty-eight inches deep. No, five and an eight. Five and an eight. That's right. Not six and a quarter. Five and an eight by twenty-eight. It was a pretty big beam. Yeah. So the depth it was. Uh, it wasn't twenty-four because it wouldn't fit in the roof system. I had to stick it down and box it in. So I, I picked it up because it was laying on the ground and it was in my way, and I threw it. And when I did, both of my hernias ripped. It's like that. I had now holes where I used to have stomach membrane. And, of course, the holes got bigger as time went by. And I was wearing a truss for a while to keep them from uh, getting worse uh, and to keep them reducible. There's something called reducibility. But I thought I was in a lot more trouble than I was in. It got to the place where I couldn't reduce them and I had to be on an inclined bed. Where all the blood rushed through my head and made me dizzy in order to keep those intestinal systems from coming out, strangulating, get gangrenous, and having to cut tissue out of me, which was not going to work well. And, uh, so I had to have surgery, reasonably emergency surgery, because I went let it go as long as I possibly could until it was impossible. And my last sermon before I had that surgery was on 666. Yeah, because I wanted to make sure you knew something about it that I thought, just in case I didn't come out of the surgery. I watched my sister go through this. She almost died, as you know, and she started to try to tell me things, too, and I stopped her because I was confident that she was going to live. I shouldn't have been so confident. She barely made it. Now she's Henri again. So. But it was very close. We almost lost her, and um, and she's aware of how close she came, and she has the the uh, the bill from the hospital system to prove how close she came. Okay. The point of it is, is that there's a totality of six six six, and I have some thoughts on it, and I'll share them with you. One of the totality of six 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 is the reasons. That Jerusalem is beloved by God, the beloved city. So when I talk about the mark of the beast, I'm also talking about the beloved city and the reason that Satan attacks it when he's let out of his thousand year prison. Where do you suppose he went? Well we got some choices. Who, Here's one. He's imprisoned for a thousand years to prove something to humanity. It becomes obvious really quickly, and he attacks the beloved city again. That's his focus. He's going to attack the beloved city every time he has a chance. It's wisdom. Know why that helps you calculate the six six six. He could do anything he wants. This is what he's doing. How smart is he? Very smart. So. Uh, That's part of it, the beloved city. Also, of course, included in this is the books and Melchizedek. Do I have Melchizedek up there? No, I didn't put him up there because I didn't think I needed to. Well, we're putting him up. So as I start to calculate the 666, I end up talking about Melchizedek. I talk about the beloved city uh, and and the Lamb's Book of Life and the abyss. All of that to get me through the 666. And so I could take I could do almost anything here. Um, I could we could go to Genesis 14:18 and I'm not sure what to do. When I wrote this, I wrote what shall I do? By we, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> you see the 666 is mark of the beast is an incredible mystery. So is the beloved city of Jerusalem. I've somewhat raised both of those the last couple of weeks. You might remember, the mark incorporates the question, how does the Antichrist manipulate, deceive people? Well, first they have to be what? They can't have wisdom and they can't have humility. How does he do it? He manipulates, he deceives the masses. He makes them believe that he is able and they are able with him to kill the Ancient of Days. Who could ever fall for that? Well, apparently, everybody. He says he can kill the one that is outside of time, the I am. Jesus Christ can be killed by the Antichrist who fully knows that he can't kill him. He's outside of time. Are you going to fool him? Is he going to know your plan? Let me repeat, he's outside of time. He can see it simultaneously. How do you sneak up on a guy that is outside of time? How does the Antichrist, again, this is part of it. The mark incorporates this question. How does the Antichrist do this? Convince the world. Again, the world willingly chooses the man of sin over the man of God. The key question, in my opinion, is why and on what basis? And then again, is it is it the one of the seven but also the eighth? Is it the mortal wound, the deadly wound, the Revelation thirteen four? Is that what's doing this? Is Revelation thirteen four when you couple it with Revelation seventeen eleven? Looks like the same thing. The deadly wound looks as though it equals the eighth and the seventh. And so I asked, does the 666 mark have a direct connection to the eighth and the one and the seventh? Where is that? So does the 666 fit here with the seventh and the eighth? By that, I mean the world worships and marvels after the beast. Does it do so because he's dead? And now he's not dead. And it has to be obvious that he's dead in order for it to be obvious that he's not dead. Does that make sense? So it can't be. And the mortal wound, as I discussed before, applies to Christ. And we know the death of Christ. The physical death was a genuine event. The words are the same. So the death of the beast is a real event. It's not a counterfeit, a fake, an act. And therefore, it has to be uh, demonstrating that. So, how does he die? He has a head wound. How do you suppose, what would convince you that this isn't a fake head wound? Ask yourself that question. And Where is he killed? What would convince you that the beast suffered a fatal head wound, and now he's alive, and the world goes nuts, and they take the mark? What would convince you? Nothing, I hope, because you will have wisdom. But the world is convinced he's dead, and they take the mark. So I think that is why it fits in here with the seventh and the eighth. You can extrapolate it out and figure out why I think so on your own. Have fun. Does the mark, the 666, have a biological impact? We know it has an economic impact. So in addition to the economic impact, do I have a biological impact as well as a verification of worship? Because it's a verification of worship. Sorry, wrong hand. It's a verification that I am a worshiper of the beast. If I have it or whoever has it, it won't be me. It's verification that I have allegiance to the scarlet beast. It's also got an economic principle to it or an economic uh, impact. And it has, does it have a biological one? What do I mean by biological one? Here is a man that suffers a head wound. Everyone knows he suffered a head wound. Everyone is convinced that he was dead. And now it's incredible that he's alive. What kind of head wound does that? If it has a biological impact... Let me ask it this way, if you wish. How pervasive, how comprehensive is this mark? Does it truncate, does it slow death by decay? Is it similar to a vaccine in that it extends the life of everyone who takes it and restores their youth and their vitality and their health? Obamacare no longer worth $2,000 a month. Yeah, is that all? Is that? <laughs> uh, that's just the, that's, never mind. When you're old like me and you've not done a good job of maintaining your machine, uh, they know it. But does this defeat the curse? What is the curse? The curse what caused the curse? Who caused the curse? Adam, Eve, who else? Satan. I have three involved in the curse. Do I not? Who bears the most responsibility? Everyone answer. Adam. <laughs> But Satan is definitely involved in it. Does he defeat the physical death aspect for the people who worship him? Does the Antichrist convince the world that he has overcome the curse of Genesis 3? That would be, a, a good choice to evaluate. We should take that on. How, but instead, how about why is Jerusalem so beloved by God and so hated by Satan? It's of course, takes te- us to Genesis 14 and Melchizedek. That is where Melchizedek shows up, where I have Satan and Melchizedek side by side. I have this Genesis 14, I have Jesus Christ and Satan. I have the king of the Jews, I have the king of Jerusalem, and I have the king of Sodom, the ancient of days of the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28:14. They're standing together. Abraham is in the middle. Again, the king of Jerusalem versus the king of Sodom. And they're going to fight over something. Where are they fighting? Not fight in the real sense. It's a human way of saying it. Where do you suppose Christ and Satan are standing when they meet together with Abraham in the middle? Why that spot? Could Melchizedek have picked anywhere? Of course he could. Why that spot? Obviously, this is a complicated subject, too. requiring an extensive study of Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 13, Genesis 14, Genesis 19, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, Psalms 110. Bring a lunch. This is how you get wisdom. As you know, I... Propose, I don't propose, I state it definitively, that Melchizedek uh, returns to Abraham and Sarah at Genesis 19. And that's Christ as well. It's clear it's Christ and that's Melchizedek. Abraham knows who Melchizedek is and when he sees Melchizedek, he knows that that's Christ. He knows that that's God himself. So I think that becomes obvious And that, of course, Christ is the angel of God. Why is he at, where is the angel of God? Is it on there somewhere? Yes, right here. Why is the angel of God coming to uh, Sodom? Because it's going to be an extinction event. And he's there. It's what happens, not good. He brings judgment to Sodom. Abraham would know who this is as soon as he saw him, would know this was the one who was there with the king of Sodom. I have the king of Jerusalem, the king of Sodom. Because we're trying to figure out why uh, Jerusalem is the beloved city. Why is it the beloved city? Why is there so much pressure here? Having said that, the first place to investigate in this subject is Ezekiel 16, followed by Ezekiel 28, then Genesis 14. And, and i got to reconcile all of that before we can even begin, begin to consider this mystery that is God's beloved and Satan's despised. We were talking earlier, what could have happened here? What does this place represent? Why does God love it and Satan hate it? To repeat that over and over again. With regard to current events, it would seem prudent for all of us to be fluent into why Jerusalem is the center of our world. Because it seems to be, doesn't it? But is it the center of our world? Or is it the center of our world? Does that make sense? That's my new phrase I have to get rid of. Why does does mankind have any idea why we're going to battle over Jerusalem again? The Bible says this will be the world war battle of battles. And it's going to come in stages. Right now, Jerusalem is the center of all antipathy. God loves it. Satan hates it. Does mankind have any idea? Why? Is mankind oblivious upon in a supernatural war? The unseen. Not. We don't war with flesh and blood, but against spiritual uh, principalities, Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness. Might be prudent to know why. Why do they want Jerusalem? And where? And why where? That is the why and where of Jerusalem. Why did God choose Jerusalem as his beloved? So let's go really fast. Shut it down here with Ezekiel 16. Ah, Wrong direction. As a trained professional, I should know that. Ezekiel 16 helps us understand Jerusalem. I'll start. 1 through 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Ezekiel was called the Son of man. Why is he called the Son of man? Because he portrays Christ. He's not the Son of man. He is the one in the Old Testament that tells us what son of man means. In the New Testament, son of man means ancient of days when it is applied to God. So when Christ calls himself son of man, he's taking you to Daniel 7 and calling himself the ancient of days. Sorry for that. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, not really, saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say thus, the Lord God of Jerusalem, your, th- thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite as for your nativity. On the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is explaining why God loves Jerusalem and why Satan hates Jerusalem. Got it so far? No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, so he's describing a dying baby, and he's calling the name of the baby is what? Jerusalem. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Why? Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again, I looked upon you and indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, said the Lord God. What is that describing? That's a wife. That's a marriage covenant oath. This is the marriage of God to Jerusalem. Why is UNESCO... Passing resolutions that says that God does not have any impact on Jerusalem. Why are they doing that? It's all about this beloved city, isn't it? We should know why. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was fine linen silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, said the Lord God. Next verse. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, And poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Go to Ezekiel 28. Musicians, you should know this is the secret hand signal that I'm about to shut it down. So you can prepare to end the pain and suffering. Of the congregation. Make him stop. That's exactly right. I'm going to read Ezekiel 28. I'm going to start at verse 11. I want you to notice. Moreover the word of the Lord came upon to me saying, Son of man. Sound familiar? Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Who's he talking about here? Satan? Jerusalem? Satan? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardines, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you. On the day you were created, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. But iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the mist of the firing stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Hmm. Let's go back over here. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquities of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your mist. I devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you, all who knew you among the people's. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you, you have become a horror, and you shall be no more forever. Now, that's not just Satan in that. That is also the scarlet beast. And we will get to that next week. But I want you to I wanted you to see that Ezekiel sixteen is Jerusalem, Ezekiel twenty eight is Satan. Similarities are extraordinary, and that helps us solve why God chose the beloved city and why Satan hates it.